the Canucks bounce back with a comeback win over the Islanders. Welcome to Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650 Friday edition of the show. Jamie Dodd and my co-host Canucks insider Thomas Drance here with you. Drancer, of course, doing fantastic work covering the team at The Athletic, and he has a very, very interesting piece up up at The Athletic this morning that we will dive into throughout the course of the show today. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca and Drancer, even before we got on the air, Questions pouring into the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line asking uh, about that article you have outlining where the Canucks stand going into the trade deadline. So uh, we will get to all of that. We will elaborate on some of the very interesting nuggets that you and your colleague Rick Dollywall reported today in The Athletic. But we should start with the game, the actual game. Yeah, we still talk about those, not truly trade speculation. There was a game last night. What? Did this team play? <laughs> yes, they played last night. You might not have known it. Uh, based on the first, if you just tuned in for the first period, because that was an extremely, extremely low event first period. But they get that 4-3 win against the Islanders. They bounce back after the uh, disastrous loss. We're, we've got some uh, technical difficulties here. We're trying to get Drancer's mic situation sorted out, but we will get Drancer on the line in just a second. Uh, by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Yeah, so they get the 4-3 win against the Islanders last night. Bounce back after that New Jersey loss. Drancer, we got you there now? I think I'm here. All right. We Hello, got Vancouver. I'm here at last. We got you, finally. I was sitting by the wrong mic, apparently, though the mic that didn't work. But now I'm on the mic that works. And always, so It's always a good place to start. So we can break down all the questions about the article up at The Athletic, uh, which is what we're hearing about the Canucks priorities 17 days out from the NHL trade deadline. I feel yeah. like that needs a bump, bump, bomb sort of sound effect. And then, of course, we'll talk about last night's ugly yep. but very impressive win over the New York Islanders. I love that game for the Canucks. I-, I talked about it at length on the show yesterday. Like, what I wanted to see, because I was expecting a game where they had to work, right? A game where it wasn't going to be easy. It was going to require discipline and gumption and, you know, some of that good old elbow grease. And... The Canucks were full value for that, right? I mean, they really took over the game in the second period once they started to get on New York's defenders. Uh, I still thought the breakout was too sloppy. I thought that kept the Islanders in the game. But, you know, that Islanders team without Matt Barzell (laughs) did not have a ton of dynamic threat to offer. Uh, And nonetheless, you know, they're a veteran team, a big team. They mucked it up. They made it the sort of game that they could take, that they could steal. And they nearly did. But for the fact that that Patterson-Hoaglander-Garland line, you know, giving up probably 150 pounds uh, against their primary matchup line and, and, you know, an additional 7-8 inches, uh, managed to get inside, make a really good play to tie it up. And then, you know, comically, to me anyway... It was actually a really bad breakout. Like, another breakout that made me nervous about the Canucks. Bo Horvat gets his body in the way, puts the puck in. Great pass to Vasily Podkolzin, silencing the haters. <laughs> Bo Horvat can't make plays. Like, that, was, that was a good play. That was pretty nice. And not only that, but he salvaged a breakout that was going to come back into the Canucks' end. Like, it was seconds away from being dumped back in. 
But Bo Horvat makes a great play in the neutral zone, which really sets it up and salvages what was effectively a a, a prey. It wasn't it wasn't even punt and hunt. They were trying to pass it out of their zone. They just sort of messed up playing it out from the back. And Horvat salvages the play. Great pass to Pud Colson. Pud Colson had had an opportunity earlier. I don't know if you noticed this, but earlier in the game, Pud Colson had had a glorious opportunity from the slot. Took it really fast. His body, his his like you you I could have told you that he was going to miss just by watching his feet, but the velocity that he got on the shot was electric. And I almost thought to myself, as I watched that shot, I was like, you know, Pod Colson usually wires those, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what a beautiful shot! Uh, it was like the first miss from a prime area that I can remember that like I registered as like a Vasily Podkolzin miss. I just feel like everything he's shot has been an absolute laser on a postage stamp co- top corner. That shot though. I wonder I wonder if that was in his mind because it was like <laughs> he he made up for it and then some scoring the game winner. Loved that game for the Canucks. Yeah. Like I loved that game and I loved the I loved what it told us about the way that this team can compete. Although, of course, that poses another question, which is where has that been? Why don't we see it all the time? Why don't or, we see it you know, regularly? A, high, a much higher percentage much of the time. Much higher percentage of the time. Because even when they've been winning a lot, like since the calendar turned to 2022, even their wins, it's like they kind of blow teams out. You know, we haven't seen them grind out a lot of wins against, you know, competent, baseline competent opponents. It, it's been feast or famine. Right, it has been wow. This team is playing incredibly well, or they're getting blown out and they're running around in their defensive zone. And this was just this felt like the first kind of normal win, right? Where it's just yeah, they they marginally outplayed the other team and they won a one goal game, right? Yep. Like you got to win a lot of those games through the course of an NHL season. Also, they won a game where Demko wasn't great, and I don't think Varlamov was very good. I know Bruce Boudreaux praised him at length, but I thought Varlamov looked gettable the entire evening. Like, the entire evening, I was like, oh, boy, that's a huge edge for the Canucks here. Ultimately, the dam did break. Uh, but when it broke, I mean, it was two goals that you certainly wouldn't fault the Islanders' goaltender for, right? I mean, th- those were lights-out goals. And and nice to see Niels Hoaglander get yeah. off the schneid. Nice to see Brad Hunt get his first in a Canucks uniform. He's become a pretty good story. Um, you know, he's he's been exactly what you could ever want from an 800K uh, depth organizational defenseman, right? Like he's come in and he's done the job and he's played well. Um, good for him. You could see the Ted Lasso smile on his face. He's the most positive guy in the world. Uh, you know, can't can't not be happy for a guy like that. Um, and then, you know, I was pretty surprised the Canucks t- didn't take any penalties. And and I did think their first goal in particular should have been nullified. I mean that that <laughs> that was a clear penalty. Um, so. You know, some good fortune, but you can't apologize for the good fortune you get because you're going to have be on the opposite side of it over an 82-game season, too. This team has uh, uh, often. I think about, like, that Boston game. Remember that Boston game where they take that uh, – Oliver ekman Larson takes that really right. soft penalty late. So it's like, you know, it all evens out. But the – yeah, the fact is is I liked, the, I liked what I saw in terms of the work rate, and that was really all that I liked from that game, which, which from an entertainment perspective was – you know, really quite awful. It was tough. It was tough to watch, especially in the first period. Oof. Can we talk about that team Oof. just for a second? I don't think because it's the Islanders and we don't pay a ton of attention to them. And I also think because it's Lou Lamorello and he's earned a ton of goodwill. We don't talk about how big a disaster this is becoming. That team has a ton of long-term contracts for guys who are 30 plus. Um, without Barzil and Beauvillier on the ice, and, and Beauvillier played, but Barzil didn't. 
they were a train wreck yesterday in terms of their team speed. Like, that might be the slowest team the Canucks have played all year up front. Um, it was wild. Uh, Noah Dobson's amazing. Adam Pellick might be my favorite shutdown defender in hockey. Uh, Pulock's not my favorite guy, but he works really well with Pellick. He's like, he had some, you know, dynamism in, in that spot. And, and I think Ilya Sorokin's great. But that forward group is as old, slow, expensive, and impossible to move as anything you'll find in the NHL. This is a team with a fourth-line center signed through 2026. The takes that we would have if that was the Canucks would be ridiculous. And, like, oh my goodness. And you talk about, you know, the disaster it's turning into, but some of that's already been realized. They had to move to Von Taves. For not, not a particularly great return, and look what he's doing in Colorado, right? Yeah, and that's become a top ten NHL. That, that was a salary cap driven move, right? Oh, hey, we got to free up some salary cap because space here. because they acquired a JP Peugeot. And you know, some sometimes people say things to me like, if, even if this team won the cup, you'd criticize them, and that's not true. But if the Canucks made it to back to back Western Conference Finals, making moves like the Islanders had giving up a first, a second, and a third for Peugeot, and then it costs you Devon Taves, stuff like that, you're, you're right. I probably would be being critical about those teams. And, um, and you know, for a reason. For well, a reason. We're seeing the reason now, and we're going to see a lot of pain in the years to come for that Islanders. That side. move, of course, are, merits criticism. Of course it does. And they, that doesn't mean everything they've done has been bad. But, yes, when you, when you give up a player who goes on to have the success like Devon Taves because you put yourself – in a rough salary cap position, yeah, you're going to get criticized for it. That's that's pretty fair uh, in my book. But the the two big takeaways for me from last night were a couple of things that had been kind of in the spotlight as negatives for this team working out in their favor, right? And one is, as you said, just the work ethic, the fact that they were down well, uh, down twice in the game or were able to come back uh, and eventually win the game. You know, Boudreaux said afterwards they didn't have the woe is me attitude is what he used, right? They're, that was absent, whereas previously maybe... He didn't reference Eeyore? No, he didn't reference Eeyore this time, but uh, you can Bruce. you can hear the echoes Bruce. of the Eeyore comment. In we, the no we need more Winnie the Pooh references. Yeah. Uh, so there was that, which, okay, hey, something that had been an issue for the team. You managed to avoid it in that game. That deserves credit. And then the other one for me was Niels Hoaglander finally scoring, right? And he has been the topic of so much conversation, starting with the head coach, Bruce Boudreaux, but from everyone else following this team as well. And just for the player, and I think hopefully for the rest of the organization to see some positive signs from Niels Hoaglander, I think is really important. I thought that line in particular was very effective as a trio, as you said, despite the incredible weight disadvantage they were at out there on the ice, they still managed to play their game and generate scoring chances. And you just hope that that can be the springboard to, you know, not just a much more productive season for Niels Hoaglander and down the road for Niels Hoaglander, but just kind of a a better relationship and a better partnership between him and the team yeah. going forward than we've seen so far well, and, recently. And I mean, I, I you know, I, I've I looked into it a little bit this week because um, I was hearing echoes of trade rumors around the industry. I'd, I'd heard that the Wild and that the Los Angeles Kings had, had certainly made inquiries into Niels Hoaglander and that you know the Canucks hadn't slammed the phone down. But uh, the Canucks aren't slamming the phone down when you ask about anybody. No. So. You know, you can't read too much into that these days, especially at the trade deadline, right? Every player in the league is being talked about by somebody, and that doesn't mean that there's a lot of heft behind it. It also makes sense that teams are going to call the Canucks on a lot of different players because they have new management. Totally. So, hey, we knew that we knew the last guys liked this player a lot, but what does the new guy think? Let's call and find out. Well, that That's going to happen. Also, no one calls about 
a player that you're playing that your new coach is playing 20 minutes a game. They call about right. the guy whose usage has declined, right? We like that guy. They're not using him. Is he available? That's a super logical thought process. In fact, if you're not going through that thought process as an NHL team, you're messing up. So anyway, the Canucks, as I've previously reported at The Athletic, uh, and as we've talked about at length, want to target players, good young players in that 20 to 25-year-old age range. And I do think the organization realizes that Niels Hoag- hey, Niels Hoaglander, he matches that description. They have one yeah, he's, in-house. He's, he's one of those. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a front-burner possibility. To be no. totally honest with you, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not going to happen if the right 22-year-old potential stud RD <laughs> is offered straight up for Niels Hoaglander. I'm not, I, it's deadline season if you're making grand pronouncements about anyone but Thatcher Demko and Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. You're, you're liable to end up with egg on your face, but... I don't. I don't see that as a, you know, particularly um, like that's not a front burner consideration. Um, is my understanding for the club, and I, you know, that's good to hear. I think that's good to hear. I, I hope that fans can take heart of that. I certainly did. I do like that. You know, we've been kind of on the whipsaw of fan reaction from a whole team perspective based on wins and losses, right? Like every win, and especially when it when it's been blowout wins and blowout losses, this is a little more understandable. But every win, it's, you know, all right, four points back in the playoffs, let's go. And then every loss, it's trade everyone, tear it down. I almost felt like we were at that point with Niels Hoglander as an individual last night, right? Where not even the fans were rooting for him to be traded, but it was, oh, man. You know, Boudreaux keeps talking about him and he's not playing much. Is he going to be moved? Then he scores the goal and it's like, all right, he's here forever. <laughs> Lifetime Canuck, <laughs> Niels Oglander. Ring of honor. Here we come. <laughs> it starts now. Ring of honor with an omelet. Um, um, and just before we get into uh, yeah. the, the trade deadline conversation, you know, you mentioned him. I did want to give a shout out to Brad Hunt, right? Scoring his first goal for his hometown team. As you said, it, this this year is going to look just like the archetypal Brad Hunt year on his hockey DB page, right? Where it's, you know, doesn't doesn't play all of the team's games because he's scratched a fair bit of the time, but doesn't play in the AHL because he's always good enough to stay in the NHL. Never hits waivers. And when he does get, yeah, never hits waivers. And when he does get in, pretty productive, especially considering the minutes and the opportunities that he's getting. You know who leads the Canucks defenseman in even strength points per 60 this year? This is it Brad Hunt? It's Brad Hunt. Do you know who's not surprised by that in the least? Me. Uh, do you know who else is not surprised by that in the least? Bruce Boudreaux. Bruce Boudreaux. And, uh, and anyway, Brad Hunt, here's the thing, right? You go down the list of the, your favorite prospect who's playing in Utica, and I'm just going to let uh, Chris Faber say a name that's not Jack Rathbone because Chris Faber knows everything about Utica. What defenseman Abbotsford. do you want to hear? Any Abbotsford defenseman not named Jack Rathbone. Uh, let's go with Ashton Sautner. Okay, perfect. That's a, you know what? That's the perfect example. Thank you. Ashton Sautner is organizational depth, right? He is a very good shutdown AHL defenseman. But when he comes up to the NHL, you're like, that is a very good shutdown and AHL defenseman playing in the NHL. Brad Hunt, the, the degree of difference between Ashton Sautner and Brad Hunt in terms of overall value is not massive, right? Like, we're, we're talking about 5 or 10%. But there is a difference in that one of them is an NHL player Right, and one of them is a very good AHL player who can play in the NHL. Right, that is a massive difference, and that's what Brad Hunt is. He's an NHL player. Yeah, and great to see him having the success. And you, you can tell what it means from him to be doing it. You know, he's done this at a lot of different Although stops. He's in his like career. that all the time. That's fair. Like if you're like, wow, Brad Hunt, he seems really jazzed. It's like Brad Hunt seems jazzed. That's Brad on, Hunt. Brad Hunt wakes up on a rainy day, looks out the window, and is like, huh. <laughs> the sun has risen. Yeah, you know, like that's who Brad Hunt is. That's but, why he's stuck around. He's the perfect. 23rd guy on a roster 
can play forward, can play D, can play the right side, can play the left side, can help out on the power play, yeah. has never had a bad day in his life. That's how you stick around in a super competitive league like the NHL. There were two interviews of new additions to the Canucks organization on our station last summer that made people go, holy cow, this guy's amazing. One was Brad Shaw, just hearing his perspective on on the penalty kill and defense and all that. And the other was Brad Hunt, just based on sheer positivity and like infectious enthusiasm that he brings. And y- you saw that again uh, when he scored last night. So we we shout love out to, Brad to Shaw. celebrate coaches Brad in Hunt. this market, by the way. That's true. We love to celebrate, but not head coaches. Like, head coaches right now, Bruce Boudreaux's in the sun, right? But, I, I mean, head coaches wear out their welcome very fast. We saw it with Alain Vigneault. We saw it with Mark Crawford. Um, you know, even Pat Quinn had his detractors, right? But assistant coaches, like Ian Clark, right? You think about it over the years. Like, over the years, there's... The legend of Ian Clark. The, uh, Ian Clark's become larger than life. The sun god. Um, you know, and Brad Hunt did one interview and everyone was like, the defense is fixed. You're not, you're, you're, I got this all summer. Your analysis isn't accounting for the impact of Brad Shaw. And I was like, what? <laughs> but do you think Brad Shaw is three top four defensemen? Like, what are you talking about? Cause I mean, he's a very good coach. Clearly it, it was a good interview. It was a very good interview, <laughs> but come on. All right. Uh, we're going to let, let's get into the trade deadline uh, conversation. We'll start it on this side. We'll we'll go into it in even more depth on the other side of the break. I encourage everyone to head over to the Athletic now. Check out the latest piece uh, from Drance and his colleague Rick Dollywall about where things stand, what they're hearing about the Canucks' plans and priorities. Uh, just slightly over two weeks out of the NHL trade deadline, and Drance, I'll start here because still the headline item when we're talking about Canucks trade deadline plans, the, the headline item still is JT Miller for a, a variety of very, very understandable reasons. And there's been this sense, I think, in the market and, and from insiders around the NHL as well, that the Canucks, per, the Canucks perspective on the idea of trading JT Miller has, has maybe changed a little. Maybe earlier they were more keen on the idea, but now they're starting to kind of rethink uh, – you know, based on the how difficult would it, be, it would be to replace what he brings to the team long term. In in your sense, is that accurate, or is it more just a situation where the Canucks are setting a very very high price for JT Miller, and that hasn't been approached yet? And so, I, I don't get the sense necessarily that it's you know at first they were really really gung ho to trade him, and now they're rethinking it as much as it is the message to other teams is, hey, if you want to come get this player, you better be prepared to give us something incredibly tantalizing in return they don't want to make a trade so desperately that they make a desperate trade right i mean that's the key thing to note not just on the miller front but across the board right they're not going to come in and make the trade for the sake of it they're going to new management recognizes right rutherford and patrick alvin they recognize a lot of things that I keep saying on this program, to be totally honest with you, right? They realize the impact of Demko in inflating their record over the course of the past two months. They realize the distance this team has to travel to compete for the sort, to compete for and play in the sort of games that they want to be in, which is like meaningful playoff games, which is, you know, uh, the game to win 15 in a row because you're an absolute buzzsaw in the Western Conference, right? Those are the games they want to play. They know they're not there yet. They know that they need to make a lot of changes to get there. They know they weren't brought in to put a more trusted face on this team, the team as constructed, right? They know that. And yet, 
they're not going to come in and just make sweeping changes for the sake of it. That this is a really delicate situation that they've inherited, right? The team is winning like cra- like gangbusters under this new head coach, right? So you have to be respectful of that to some extent. But but not to the extent of avoiding making deals because of the message it sends to the room. You can't you can't function like that in this league anymore. Um they have very little cap space. And that is a huge priority for this club. Like, a huge priority. Uh, I don't think they will be satisfied. Forget I don't think. This organization, this new management group, will not be satisfied if the deadline passes and they've moved out, you know, a a guy on an expiring contract like a Tyler Mott and found a way to duck the Halak bonus as big a deal and as impressive a piece of trading work as will be required to move him out. And that's it. That would not be a win in their minds, right? Forget forget what I, I'm going to say about it. <laughs> that wouldn't be a win in their minds. So cap space is everything, and they don't have it. They don't have enough prospects. They don't have enough th- stuff coming. And additionally, you know, I, I do think that while this team has some really good elite young pieces, this team also needs elite talent. It's not just building a third line here. They need elite talent, elite players. To come in and join this roster and, and help the cause. So they've inherited this very volatile, very tricky, very complex situation. And, you know, in the case of JT Miller, I don't know that he was ever being super aggressively shopped. Right. I don't think he's been pulled back because I don't think he was ever sort of out there, whatever that means. I don't think he was ever on the rack <laughs> at uh, at retail price, right? Um, I think they're... Listening on everybody, they're biding their time, and I think while there is very much a, a realistic scenario where JT Miller is a Canuck beyond this season, um, you know, and maybe beyond that, I also think there's a realistic scenario where one of the teams bidding on his services offers up the type of game-changing, long-term piece that the club can't refuse. The godfather offer. An offer you can't refuse. And so... You know, it's it, it's no different for JT Miller than it is for 550 other players around the league. Like, there's a price at which the team will move them. Um, but that price is really high. I don't think it's been matched yet. And we'll see if it gets matched in the next 17 days and, and how that influences the Canucks' thinking. But, but I think, and again, I don't think, the Canucks with Miller, right, in the event that they keep him, I think it's going to be about who he is as a player and what he brings to this organization and how difficult it is to replace that. I don't think it's going to be about this playoff push, and I don't think it's going to be about the message it sends the room or any of that ephemeral stuff that doesn't really matter. It's going to be a cold, rational decision on what makes this team better for the next three, four years, whether that's keeping Miller or or um, or not. And I like that. I mean, I'm glad I'm I'm... I was heartened in reporting it, like I was happy to hear as I was reporting it, that, you know, I, I do think this team is looking at it from the right lens, even if, you know, the new consensus that they're more likely to, to move on from Brock Besser than JT Miller runs sort of counter to the advice that I would give based on, you know, the respective ages and production and, you know, how I think guys, both guys will trend over the next four or five years. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say this about the JT Miller situation, right? I have been on this show a proponent of the idea of trading Miller. I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think you could do a lot to set yourself up as a team moving forward. But that, you know, kind of um, 
that interest in exploring a JT Miller trade, it comes with the, a major, major caveat, which is you only do it at this deadline if you get an absolutely fantastic offer. You said the Godfather offer. Yeah, that's absolutely what it should take. That's totally appropriate by the Canucks. You know, this is not a, uh, a an expiring contract. This is not a fire sale, everything must go situation with JT Miller. If teams are trying to lowball you, say, yeah. okay, we'll talk to some other teams at the draft then. There's no sense in, and, and you know, early on in the well, kind they of... they also don't buy for a second that Miller's value diminishes on the other side of the deadline. Right. And, you know, I also think it makes sense. I mean, for me, the cap space matters so much. That, that I think the return is secondary. But that's easy for me to say when I don't, I don't run the team, <laughs> when I don't have skin in the game. <laughs> you know, like, that's my analysis. And, and and I don't think it's wrong if you're looking at it the way that I do, in spreadsheets and in concepts and in sort of basic management principles. But I don't think you can criticize the organization for being like, no, you're seventh best U23 player, a first-round no. pick, and, you know, X cast-off isn't going to get it done. So it's going to be really interesting. I, I, I would say this. Rick and I had a little bit of a disagreement, as or have a little bit of a running disagreement in private going, where, where I suspect that very little has changed with Miller over the course of the past eight weeks, and he really thinks that Miller's unlikely to be dealt. And between us, we sort of debate it back and forth, and that's our opinion, but we report the facts, right? But between us, we debate it here back and forth. So, you know, what I would say is, at this point, all I'm confident in is we're not going to stop monitoring it until noon on March 21st. But, you know, it, it doesn't feel like... I think we're going to see some fireworks uh, above Rogers Arena uh, before March 21st, but I don't know if those fireworks will have a JT Miller-tinged hue. If the Canucks were trying to maximize their leverage and convince interested teams to offer more and to make that <laughs> godfather offer this for is JT what it Miller, would like. it would exa- look exactly yeah. like this. Now... That could also be consistent with them saying, you know what, we love JT Miller, we want to keep him. But again, just theoretically, if they were trying to do that leverage play and get as much as they can from other teams, this is what it would look like. For for what it's worth, they've uh, they've caused the New York Post to up their offer from <laughs> from a bunch of guys. Yeah, it's no longer to, it's now Kravstov Kapo, and... it's now Capo Caco. So Ooh. you're 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 working your way up in terms of the New York Post's negotiation yes. against themselves, Although which they, is good fun. They uh, they are still not including any of their like three best prospects or anything so which which i don't think is going to get it done in a jt miller deal i don't think you can take all of your good assets off the table and expect to acquire <laughs> jt miller and, and while while i you know still think that there's a logic to a miller trade without one of those assets coming back personally that's my personal analysis i'm certainly not going to criticize the organization for maximizing no. their return uh all right we got lots and lots of questions coming in about the trade deadline and where the canucks are headed in the next couple of weeks we'll try to answer as many of those as we can and dig into more of what drance and dollywall are reporting by the way subscribe to the canucks hour podcast on apple spotify google wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review as well lots more coming up it's canucks hour sportsnet 650 whatever that means i don't think he was ever on the rack Welcome back. It's Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Canucks insider Thomas Drance here with you as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. A final 20 minutes or so of the show before the weekend and lots and lots to discuss 
As I mentioned on the other side, Thomas Drance's athletic colleague, uh, Rick Dollywell, who, of course, you see on Donnie and, the, and, Donnie and Dolly as well. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, new article <laughs> up at The Athletic today, kind of as an overview of what they're hearing, working the phones based on uh, on what the Canucks are thinking, potential directions for the team as we inch closer to the NHL trade deadline. And uh, lots of questions about the defense and one defenseman in particular coming in. So I'll just read a bunch of them, Drance. This one says uh, from Jim in North Van, in Drance's reporting, a lot of defense were mentioned. Rutherford early on talked a lot about forwards. Do you get the sense Alvin and new management are now realizing what work the back end needs? Another unsigned one says, so Mr. Drance, can you elaborate on this Bowen Byram surprise? Somebody else says, I just saw Bowen Byram's name mentioned with JT Miller. Anything to this? And then finally, Brent in Surrey says, uh, when you hear about stud D-men and the Canucks' desire for one, uh, what kind of names come to your mind as distinct possibilities? So, lots of interest in the Canucks potentially being interested in young, blue-chip defensemen. <laughs> and then, obviously, specifically, Bowen Byram's name is going to pique a lot of interest in this neck of the woods. In the early days of my career, every single Canucks fan had, like, a milkman's brother's, you know, sister-in-law's yoga trainer who swore that they were close friends with Shea Weber and that he really wanted to come play in Vancouver. (laughs) And for years, it was like the Shea Weber speculation was, you know, something I did every month. (laughs) It was like a, it was an evergreen note that I played every month. And yeah, I mean, fans in this market love their Western Canadian defenseman, ideally BC born. Well, I was going to say defenseman, but you go back like a decade before when you're talking about, and it was Paul Correa, right? Right. Totally. Paul Correa's coming home. Paul Correa's coming home, baby. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Scott Niedermeyer too, though, right? Yeah. So, I mean, anyway, I was surprised when I heard it, but as we went through reporting our article, we had one source suggest to us a name in connection with the mill with Miller and the Colorado Avalanche, and that was Bowen Byram. Now Byram has not played since January 10th. He's dealt with unfortunately some significant head injury issues throughout the course of his rookie season. When he's been on the ice, he has looked like Bowen Byram. And what does Bowen Byram look like? One of the best young defensemen, yeah, in hockey. So look, you get a tip, you run it down, and sometimes you get to the point where it's not quite 100% confirmed so that you're not going to say, like, this is who they asked about, which we didn't, right? We said one of our sources linked this guy to him. We trust this guy, and we wanted to present it because it's of such high interest. But there's a trend here, right? There's a trend here. I brought up Ty Smith from the New Jersey Devils. I've brought up Keandre Miller from the New York Rangers, right? Um, I know that the Canucks checked in on Jacob Chikorin. Didn't like the price, didn't call back, but they checked in. And now, and now the name Bowen Byram surfaced as we worked through our reporting this week. You sense a trend emerging? Yes. Now, two things that are interesting to me about this. One, the four names I just listed are all lefties. So that suggests that position independent, right, this club needs and wants to add talent, like big talent on the back end. This is not something that they necessarily need to accomplish by March 21st. But over the next 12 to 18 months, that sort of time horizon, landing at least one, but ideally more, players with the upside to be stud defensemen on this team 
that is a significant priority for this club, a significant priority for this organization. And I think that's completely understandable. I, th- I think you should hear that if you're a Canucks fan and say, yes, please figure that out now. The Canucks are one of 32 teams that desire this player type. <laughs> Everyone wants them. Pretty in demand, yeah. Pretty in demand. But, you know, at, over the course of over the course of our reporting, both this week and prior, there is a trend emerging about a type of player that the Canucks are asking about, and it's not a coincidence, right? This is a priority for the organization, although, again, not necessarily a priority before the deadline. A longer-range priority is to add star-level upside on the back end. And, yeah, let, let, let's go. Makes sense. Let's go. Makes sense. And just on the Byram thing, and I... The caveats that you give there are very important and notable, and I hope everyone takes them seriously, right? If you just look at it from Colorado's perspective, this is a discussion you and I have had on the show before, right? That teams, we've kind of gone through this process now where teams used to trade first round and second round picks and good prospects without really considering the long-term ramifications, right? right? It's like, yeah, sure, whatever. We'll give you a first round pick for this guy. Then there's been a, a Paul large... Gerstad. Yeah, exactly. There's been a significant course correction to where prospects and picks now are are extremely valued by teams even contending teams at the deadline. Colorado is an absolute buzzsaw right now. They're the, they are the single cup favorite. But this is also There's a team no one else in their tier. No one can hit their fastball. This is a team that hasn't been past the second round of the playoffs with this core. Now, you're, Nazem Kadri's having an incredible year, but he's a UFA. Nathan McKinnon is one year away from being a UFA of your key players. They have depth on defense, right? In McCarr, Gerard, Devon Taves, who are under contract for the foreseeable future as well. If I'm in Colorado's shoes, this is the year to go all in, right? You, I don't think the lesson from that team being a buzzsaw shouldn't be, you know what, we're already good enough to win the cup. It should be, we're doing everything in our power to maximize our chances right now, this year, rather than worrying about three or four years down the road, right? That is the quintessential team that should be trying to go all in. Now, I have no idea if that's how they see it, but I think if you could make a case for any team, you know, quote unquote, overpaying for a premium asset like JT Miller at the deadline, I think it would be the Colorado Colorado Avalanche because of the incredibly impressive roster that they have built there and their chances, the legitimate chances they have to break through and win the cup this year. When you are smack dab in the middle of your contention window and when you are the best team in the in the NHL, right? The value, the value, and I, I'm not meaning value in terms of trade value. I'm meaning value in terms of like overall value to your team with a long horizon view of every marginal improvement, right, becomes astronomical, right? There's almost no price you can pay to add a star level player to your roster that's, that, that is not worth it, <laughs> to be totally honest, when you're in the Avalanche's shoes. So the thing about Miller 2 from an Avs perspective that's worth keeping in mind, and, and you know, I don't want to hit this too hard because... I got a couple of Avs tips over the course of reporting this um, story with with Rick, and one of them didn't check out. One of them one of them didn't check out and isn't in the piece. I'd been told the Avs had inquired about a certain player. We tried to run it down, and we were told in no uncertain terms that's wrong, it, absolutely incorrect. Silly season, you know, strikes uh, again. Yeah, silly yeah. season strikes again. You can ignore that safely. But so just really quickly, the Avalanche Cup window dovetails entirely with the best contract in hockey. Nathan McKinnon, 6.3 million. That deal is in effect this year and next. 
So the term remaining on McKinnon's surplus value, you know, he provides double that value to your team, um, coincides identically with Miller's, right? Additionally, Miller has now shown that he can play center and produce in that role, and the Avs have the cadre question hanging over them. So we've talked about this in relation to Toffoli going to Calgary, right? We've talked about, like, the problem-solving nature, even the Labushkin deal, right? Where it's like, that was worth a premium price to Toronto because they cleared out a bad contract, right? Can you solve a problem for a team as a seller and thus increase the value you net in a trade return? JT Miller seems to solve a lot of problems for Colorado. Um, an interesting an interesting link, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the, so the Avs, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Rangers, and I would note this too, very importantly, I still believe the Rangers are the cent- central player in that in that mix, in the event that this is a road the team goes down. Industry thinks that's far less likely today than they did a month ago. Um, we'll see. The Avs are a fascinating fit for a lot of reasons, but good point on the Rangers still being out there as well. Uh, this text comes in from Jay in East Van. Where is Besser's value compared to years past, considering his quiet season? And I guess I would also add to that. It's not the quiet season. It's picked up. No, but it, but it doesn't matter. The right. quiet it's, season, it, it's the ca- it's the cap situation, yeah, like, the contract situation. The, the quiet the quiet season is not what diminishes Besser's value. If Besser was signed for two more years beyond this one at six million dollars, he would have significant trade value. There'd be a ton of teams around the league that would view this guy and say, if we get him with a really good playmaking center and he plays the flank on the power plays, a thirty goal scorer, a sixty five point guy, we love that. You know, and we can get it for. And we can get him with term for less than, you know, maybe we, we might have to pay for another option or for a comparable option on the free agent market. We will pay through the nose for that. But the qualifying offer is the dynamic that that results in Besser having significantly less trade value than he does on ice value to this team and to whatever team he acquires or uh, acquires him should should it go down that route. The thing to watch for with Besser is if you want to maximize your return – the way to do it is to swap him for a player in a similar circumstance, right? And the three guys that come to mind right away, these are guys who require high qualifying offers following the season and whose teams might be looking at those as tough decisions, right? Jake DeBrusque in Boston. Yes, Barry Kotkaniemi in Carolina, although Frank Saravalli reporting that his camp is working on an extension with the Carolina Hurricanes, so we'll see. And Kasperi Kapanen. In Pittsburgh, and obviously of those names, Kapanen looms largest, considering Rutherford and Alvin drafted him and then reacquired him a couple of years after trading him for Phil Kessel. So that is, um, those are sort of the names out there. That's one approach you can take to maximize your value in the difficult situation that you're in with Besser. The problem with doing it that way is that that eats into the cap benefit of moving Besser and finding cap benefit, like like netting cap savings is honestly, honestly, and I, I, this is not my hobby horse that I, I'm just blasting away at on the radio. I believe that that is a signature priority for the Canucks leading up to the deadline. And I think it's something that they know they need if they're going to get things back on track. And if that is that clear cut of a priority for the team, the logic of a Besser trade starts to make a whole lot less sense because it's it would be less about purely clearing cap space and more about kind of doing those stylistic, um, 
you know, player in player out trades. And maybe you win that. But again, it's not it's not the kind of deal where, like you said, you know, right, that you can win even if you lose it. Right. Because you're not getting that extra cap space involved in back uh, back in a a better deal. So that one becomes a whole lot less appetizing from my perspective. Anyways, Ian and Coquitlam says over under on trades the Canucks make by March 21st, 3.5. What are you taking the over or under? On 3.5. So let's do some quick hitters here, right? Because Tyler Mott, of course, is a UFA. Yaro Halak, as we understand, the Canucks would love to move and get out of that cap hit for next year. What right now do you see as the likelihood of Mott and Halak both moving at the deadline transfer? Both. So I have to. You, you well, want no, me no, to? No, fine. You go want through, me to go parlay. through individually? Go you want me to parlay? Go through them the, individually. You want? Jeez. Do I get a round robin parlay? Like, is it gonna <laughs> is is um is play now gonna pay me out even if I get one of them wrong? No. Um. I, look, I'm not gonna put percentages on it because it's deadline season and that is just a fool's errand. That is that is a guaranteed clip that's going to come back as people say that I was wrong. <laughs> um. I would view Tyler Mott at this juncture as the player most likely to move by the deadline. Okay. I'm not gonna put a percentage on it. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it like that. Um, there have been talks. There haven't been significant and substantive talks. The club has been gauging his value around the league. I think we know where this goes. Um, Mott would be a pricey re-signing, right? It just is what it is. Like, if you're Tyler Mott, you've dealt with some significant injuries, right? This is a really important contract to set you and your family up for generations, right? You play a unsustainably demanding physical style of hockey this is a vital contract and if the club's not going to give you the type of contract that convinces you that your best career decision isn't to go elsewhere compete in the playoffs and hit the open market like what do you you know then then what's the point right that's actually a really interesting wrinkle from Mott's perspective is if if he is if he declines to sign an extension with the Canucks that means he's going to a playoff team where he has a chance to increase his value even more as a UFA and and look I know Tyler I've watched Tyler Mott play 200 games I've talked to him a few times Uh, you know I I think I have a very good sense of this player Tyler Mott's gonna help someone win games in the playoffs period period he's gonna kill off some penalties he's gonna score some big goals against the grain um there are situations too and and players that he could play with that I think would really bring out the best in him depending on where he goes so anyway I think Tyler Mott's the most likely player to be dealt Halak I have no way and I'm so reluctant I'm I'm very I think the Halak situation is incredibly volatile because at the end of the day while I have sources some sources indicating to me that they think Halak is more willing to wave today than he maybe was a few months ago in part so that he can get some playing time at the end of the day when you've got a no move clause it's not it's not a general thing it's not like he's willing to it's like it's It's not a blanket wave no it's like when the situation comes up yes or no you know it's a three-dimensional deal it's a deal between two teams plus a player and Halak has struggled recently He's hurt his trade value, no question, with the performances in New Jersey and against the Islanders at home. The New Jersey one in particular, lots of the lots of the industry was out at that game in Newark um, last week. Tons of scouts, tons of uh, you know NHL luminaries. He's got that bonus that you've got to convince a team to take if you're going to get the full value from from dealing him. Um, you know, it's just an enormously complicated situation and a volatile one. And so I think navigating it would be, you know, 
extraordinarily praiseworthy. If they find a way to resolve this situation and get out of that bonus, I mean, standing ovation will be due. Like, that would be a really incredible piece of management work from Rutherford and company. Um, You know, like, to the point where I'm not going to be carving them either if they can't get it done because it's just so complicated. It's just so hard to navigate. And again, while while I'm maybe hearing positive things about Halak's posture, read the NMC, uh, you know, you have to take that with a heaping of salt because it's a case-by-case thing. Like, he holds the hammer in pressing send on any deal he's involved in. And so we'll see. Let's wait. An extraordinarily complicated situation. Tough to f- figure out what teams might be interested and need the goalie upgrade. Um, and then And then... You know, additionally, I think the goalie market is really tough to gauge this at this trade deadline because there's just not a lot of players available. And those that are have really big tickets, right? They have large cap hits. Halak is Halak might be the most affordable option for some teams to consider that maybe helps the Canucks out here. We'll see what they do. And then again, and this is the most important part for me, this was the most important nugget in our article and it hasn't gotten as much attention as the rest. The Canucks want to be more active. Even if they get both of those things done, they want to be more active than that. And I, I think they need to be more active than that in terms of carving out cap space. Uh, I gave you the $7.5 million cleared out in cap space as sort of my bar for what I would consider to be a big win at the trade deadline. I'm not saying the club has that goal in mind. I'm not, I certainly wasn't speaking for anyone but myself in, in making that piece of analysis. But I don't think it's far off from what the organization itself hopes to accomplish over the next 17 days. And just to bring it back to uh, Ian and Coquitlam's question, the over-under of 3.5, I'll take the under just because I think... Sorry, 3.5 trades. trades. I'll go... I think the number I would kind of predict would be three. I'll take the over. I'll take the right, over. Just, go as over a friendly, just as a friendly... Well, look at as thing. a as a uh, someone who comes on the radio to talk about the team every day, I would have no problem with the overhitting on that one. Ba- bag of mini eggs for the winner. <laughs> That's right. Let's do it. Sounds like a deal to me. All right, everyone, enjoy the weekend. Fantastic uh, interaction. I always appreciate the text. Six fifty, six fifty. The People Show is up next. Bick Nazar, Randy Janda. You've got it on the home of the Canucks. Sportsnet six fifty.